Hello and welcome to the Science Set Free podcast with me, Mark Vernon, and Rupert Sheldrake, who joins me too. To talk this time, Rupert, I thought we might explore the notion of the spiritual senses. And this was an idea that really existed throughout, certainly in the West, throughout the medieval period, um, into the Greek and Roman period. The idea that we don't just have empirical senses, you know, um, taste, touch, sight, hearing, smell, but that we have spiritual senses as well, which are non-material, hence um, the spiritual notion. It's not through material contact with the world that we sense uh, in these this different way. Um, but nonetheless, it is a perception of the world. Um, and it's the kind of sense we have that something, say, has a wholeness, an integrity, or it's the sense we have that something has a kind of pattern, um, or the sense we have that through the particular we feel something universal or transcendent. Um, so we don't just see a beautiful object, but through that we see the beautiful itself in some way. Um, and I feel this is a, an idea that whilst officially, you know, is kind of out of fashion, we don't talk about nine senses like Thomas Aquinas did, we only talk about five. Um, but I wonder whether um, uh, actually we use these spiritual senses all the time, um, but somehow feel that um, they're not uh, robust enough or we're deluding ourselves when we do, or um, they're just kind of flights of fancy. Have you ever come across this notion before? I've come across the idea of spiritual senses, and of course the idea of senses beyond the normal five standard ones. And I think there's a distinction between what one could call extrasensory perception, or ESP, which would include telepathy, premonitions, precognition, which one could call psychic phenomena, um, which are, of course, taboo from the point of view of standard materialist science. Uh, Those, I'm pretty sure, exist in animals and in people. I think they're normal, not paranormal, natural, not supernatural. uh, Dogs know when their owners are coming home quite often, and animals pick up when earthquakes or tsunamis are going to happen in a way that might be rather mysterious from a scientific point of view. And humans have these kinds of intuitions. So I think those are very normal. Most people have them in connection with telephone calls. You think of someone who then rings. Now, I wouldn't call those spiritual senses. I'd call them psychic senses. I think the spiritual senses you're talking about would go beyond those. But beyond the five senses, there'd be the sixth sense, let's say, or the seventh sense, these psychic senses, and then further ones where there's a sense of connection or holistic perception. Yes, I do think that those are kinds of senses. They're sometimes put under the name intuition, which is a kind of catch-all word. And most people in the modern world would not be familiar with this, the idea of spiritual senses. Maybe you could say a bit more about examples. Yeah, I mean, it's funny you should say uh, intuition, because as you say, it's kind of is a bit of a catch-all, uh, and people aren't quite sure what status it has. Um, but um, through, I guess, through, um, in the West, the Platonic t- tradition, so there's the philosophy associated with Plato, through people like Plotinus, and then through the medieval writers, like individuals like Thomas Aquinas, um, they would argue that we have these spiritual senses that give us as real information about the world as the empirical senses do. Um, so, for example, um, if you think about mathematics, um, even to this day, mathematicians will prefer a solution because it's somehow simple or elegant or beautiful. It's a kind of aesthetic criteria. 
Um, and I guess today people might explain that in many different ways. They might just say it's it's more you it has more utility to have a simple kind of solution. It's easier to handle, easier to use. Um, but it does sort of rather beg the question as why it feels truer somehow. And the medieval and the Platonic tradition would say um, that's because um, what you get in touch with through the more elegant and beautiful solution is something that is actually closer to a deeper perception of reality, that beauty itself leads you to something which is in some sense truer. Um, it's, it has epistemological um, kind of weight as well as just being beautiful in a rather more trivial sense. But would that apply to, I would say, appreciating art, like great music or great works of art or great architecture? I mean, this is there's a sense in which, in a secular world, the, the museums or the cathedrals of secularism, in the sense that they're, uh, everyone would agree that humans have an aesthetic sense and this is a major part of civilization. Um, so would it go beyond the elevated feelings one may have when listening to Bach, for example? Well, I think um, one of the things which you might think about in relation to, say, works of art um, is that one of the things that makes a work of art a work of art is that it has a kind of coherence. It hangs together in some way. Um, it may be that the elements within the art are um, jar, are juxtaposed, and resonate in discordant ways, but nonetheless it's sort of framed, literally with a frame or in the, in the way it's presented, and that gives it a kind of coherence. And that sense of something having integrity, being more than the sum of the parts, you might mm. say, would be another spiritual sense. Um, and I think the medievals would have thought that that's what we mean when we give a name to something. Um, if, for example, I look at a collection of trees, and rather than just seeing 60 trees that happen to be in the same place, I see a wood or a copse, that name is trying to say... That gathering, that natural gathering, somehow is more than just the sum of a bunch of trees. It feels like a place. Um, and that coherence would be what we're kind of sensing when we give things names. With a person, you might say, um, you know, I could describe you as um, a man, lives in Britain, two eyes, two ears. You know, all those kind of bits that make you that I can perceive through the empirical senses. But the fact that I give you a name, Rupert... Mm. Um, capture something more than just the sum of the bits and bobs that we're made of mm. um, so I think art, architecture um, things that somehow hang together um, and give us a sense of satisfaction something that belongs together um, that communicates through its particular coherence the sense that there's perhaps a universal coherence that somehow all things hang together that's what the medievals might have meant by the, the spiritual senses I suppose that medieval cathedrals and churches are one way of activating the spiritual senses, because when you go into one of the great cathedrals like Lincoln, um, you have the architectural coherence, you have a, the immense scale of the cathedral, you have the, the stained glass windows, the beauty of the tracery, the beauty of the structure, the sense of space. You have the acoustic sense, and if you go to a service like Choral Evensong, where you hear the whole cathedral resonating to beautiful music, and beautifully worded prayers there's a sense in which the whole of that I suppose is designed to awaken these spiritual senses and the sense of a presence of God beyond just the stones of the architecture and just the vibrations of sound in the air from the music so I suppose that these uh, traditional uh, sacred buildings are one way of activating them I mean Hindu temples are 
great mosques, uh, great Muslim tombs like the Taj Mahal and many other of these domed tombs. They're all ones that activate a kind of spiritual sense or a sense of a presence that goes beyond the merely human. Well, I think, again, that's, that, that reminds me of another kind of angle that the spiritual senses um, bring, which is how the, the particular can relate to the universal, that um, a part can have its own part, but can also be part of the whole. And in fact, the whole is also kind of contained in the part. Mm. If, you, if you go into a, um, a great Gothic cathedral, um, as it were, every kind of arch, um, every detail in the building um, has its place, um, but it belongs in the wider space. Um, and also seeing you know, a single arch somehow captures the grandeur of the Gothic feel um, mm. in itself too, as well as being part of, just a part of the whole. Um, yeah, so to, you know, to use the rather sort of technical language, it's the relationship between the imminent and the transcendent. And these things are not poles apart um, with the spiritual senses. They're actually speaking of the same thing. Um, so, you know, we know ourselves as individuals, but also part of humanity, or um, we um, look to a particular instance, like, say, you know, William Blake's notion of how seeing the world in a grain of sand, it is a grain of sand that's in the world, but the world is also in the grain of sand. Mm. It's that kind of poetic spiritual sense as well. And presumably, as Blake's line would suggest, this is not just with man-made objects like cathedrals and temples, but also with natural phenomena like flowers. I mean, I personally spend a lot of time looking at flowers and leaves. It's one of my main spiritual activities, actually, in terms of becoming aware of something beyond myself. Um, I mean, obviously, it happens in everyday life through relations with other people and through works of art and architecture, but for me, plants are one of the ways in which this happens. Also, animals, like the flight of birds, but especially with flowers. Um, and flowers have a kind of mandala-like quality. Um, they have the colour, they have the, often have scent, um, and there is this sense of the part being part of some greatly larger whole. Um, so I suppose the spiritual senses can be aroused through our senses. Yeah. I, I mean, what you it's almost, you're, it sounds like you're saying the scientific vocation is more than just studying leaves for botanical reasons. Um, there is a kind of satisfaction that it brings to your soul, perhaps you might say, um, doing, that, doing that activity as well. It is a kind of spiritual activity as well as being a strictly empirical scientific activity. Well, that's the traditional way of looking at plants in which the science of what used to be called, still is called, morphology, the science of form, where you're looking at botanical forms. And when you look at, say, the herbarium at Kew Gardens, here are all these pressed flowers where you can compare the shapes, the forms. And it's all based on form. Traditional plant taxonomy is based on the forms of flowers, leaves and other organs. Um, it's not based on DNA and chemistry. The modern tendency, of course, is reductionist and tries to uh, grind up the flowers and the leaves and, and look at the DNA and do DNA sequencing as a way of identifying what species something is. And that is a very reductive uh, activity which actually loses the aesthetics of the form in the process. But traditional science, I think, had a lot to do with morphology and the appreciation of the forms of things. Traditional astronomy was looking at stars and the patterns of stars and the movements of planets. Traditional botany and zoology are looking at the forms and behaviour and uh, of animals. And um, so I think that, they, that science 
is still a window into these, uh, as it were, spiritual senses. Uh, and even in its reductionist form, um, the structures of molecules are forms. So one's still dealing with forms. They're just forms that are invisible to our normal senses. Yeah, it almost feels like um, the reductionist take on things um, somehow can't quite escape the aesthetics. When you were talking, it reminded me of astronomy, which is something that I know a little bit about through doing a physics degree. And um, there is the kind of um, the hard-nosed uh, study, for example, of how stars work, you know, which you can be described in equations and clearly is very powerful and important in terms of uh, understanding um, stars as kind of mechanisms. Um, but it's funny how I think a lot of people get drawn to astronomy um, professionally or otherwise because of the beauty of it. Hmm. Um, you know, whenever there's a program on telly about the cosmos, you can be sure there'll be beautiful pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope hmm. and gorgeous music inviting you to enjoy the aesthetics of hmm. all this as well. Um, I mean, I wonder, do you think something is lost to science when that aesthetic side is denied or is sort of pushed to one side as if it's just froth? Do you think science oh. actually loses out? Well, I think so. I think so. I mean, it, it, if it's pushed out of science, then scientists may still have these in their sort of private moments as a kind of private hobby almost. But um, I think it's a great deprivation of science to make it utterly mundane and and prosaic and cut it off from any sense of the transcendent. Now, many scientists would say they get this sense of the transcendent through the beauty of mathematical equations, which is a kind of going back to the platonic view you mentioned earlier. Um, but I do think it's a great loss, and I think it's one of the things that makes science unattractive to a lot of people, that it's seen as a way of saying that something's nothing but, your aesthetic experience is nothing but neurochemical discharges in your brain, for example. Um, I mean, there's nothing but approach of materialism. It, it actually is a form of willful blindness, in my opinion, and it pervades our whole society. And actually, I would suggest that the that the spiritual senses um, need to be opened, just as you need to open your eyes to see things. Uh, you need to open your spiritual senses to see things in a spiritual way. Yeah. Um, this sense of connection or wholeness. And I think many traditional practices um, are ways of opening eyes or opening, as it were, spiritual senses. And in the modern world, where these practices are denied, ridiculed, marginalised, ignored, then it does impose a kind of willful blindness. And the ways of opening to the spiritual senses seem... There's many of them. For example, saying grace or giving thanks before meals provides a kind of window of quiet before a meal. Uh, traditional in most cultures, um, maybe all cultures, um, a moment when you're sitting together to eat a meal that's shared, or even on your own, um, to have a moment when there's a, a sense of connection with all the the earth that's given this food that you're eating, the people who've helped prepare it and bring it to your table, the, the people who've cooked it, um, give thanks for the health to be able to sit there and eat it together. A sense of larger connectedness, um, which a brief pause or, or uh, the saying of a grace before a meal provides a window for. Now, it doesn't always work and it can become a mere formality, but if it's simply ignored, 
if there isn't that window at all, then you can't see out of it. There, there may be a window that you don't always look out of, but the presence of a kind of window um, gives an opening. Do you think that um, the growth now of interest in systems biology, or you mentioned their Gaia, um, the notion that there's a um, sort of top-down pressure and the whole has an impact upon the parts as well as the parts contributing to the whole. Would it be right to relate that to this notion of the spiritual senses? Well, I think it could be related to them. Um, the problem with systems biology is, ex- extre- well, all systems science is, is very abstract. It's really a question of mathematical or computer modelling um, where you can see the relation of the parts to each other within a system. Um, for some people it may help in opening that window for most people I think it's much too abstract because most people don't think in a sort of highly intellectual abstract way Um, they get it much more through experiences or through the senses yeah but if if, it it would nonetheless within that rarefied world of systems biology do you think it's having an impact there it's a right way to understand this new interest in in systems, or is that is that a bit of a, a distraction? Well, I don't think that systems biology has much impact on the way biology happens in labs. It's uh, it's more a modelling thing that mathematical modellers like, and unfortunately, it should be more widespread in laboratories. But most biological research is still very reductionist in mood, and is trying to grind things up and reduce them to molecules or DNA sequences or something like that. So I think it would help if it, if it led to a more holistic approach in biology, and it, perhaps it is helping. So it may be a kind of transitional phase. I yes. mean, I'm also partly thinking of the kind of science which is associated with figures like Goethe. Um, it's sometimes called romantic science, which is not a very helpful phrase, I think, because it doesn't mean romantic as in sort of rather rosy-eyed. It means romantic as in trying to see the whole as well as see the parts. Yes. Um, but I'm I, I just wondering whether it might be a sort of a, a recovery of that approach. Well, I think it is for some people. Um, I mean, the point about Goethe is that he was saying that um, science should not just be about breaking things down. It should be about being able to integrate what we actually experience with our senses. And a lot of Goethe's stuff was, in fact, about plants. I myself was very influenced by reading Goethe when I was an undergraduate and um, because I was studying botany at Cambridge. This was something that meant a lot to me, this idea of looking at plants, and and it still does. Um, But Goethe's approach to morphology did influence botanical morphology, but that's rather out of favour within science at the moment. Um, But I think his uh, approach is the right one, and it means that if you understand something scientifically, if you understand about plant hormones, plant anatomy, and so forth then it should illuminate the way you actually see and understand the plant when you actually look at it. So that your perception of the plant with your senses is not separate from this intellectual understanding, but it's informed by it, and they're integrated through um, seeing as a whole and bringing the stuff together in an experience. Another area of science where I wonder whether this notion of the spiritual senses is implicitly part of the issue um, is in artificial intelligence um, and the struggles that there have been, in spite of the extraordinary computer power now available, to do the most basic things um, on computers which we human beings do without even thinking. Um, I don't know, some, you know, you read these articles about 
um, deep blue that can now beat humans at chess. But of course, it seems that the computer is playing in inverted commas chess in a completely different way um, to the, the human player. The computer is running through all possible calculations at an extraordinary rate. You know, whereas the, the, the chess master looks at the board and engages with what's going on in really a very different way. We might call it intuition. But it's something about being able to see the pattern, the whole, um, a sort of felt anticipation of what might happen, what might go on. And I wonder if that's because the human player still has access to the spiritual senses, but that can't actually be replicated um, on in the computers or only in this only in this way, sort of imitated through colossal computational power. Yes, a recent paper by some theoreticians argued that computers could never achieve this kind of integration because for a computer to integrate things it loses information and to put things into as it were a simpler synthesis Um, and that the way computers work could never achieve this kind of integration that comes naturally to the way our minds work I mean our minds work through wholeness I mean the whole of nature works through uh, integrative wholeness that includes parts you know the wholeness of a plant includes the roots the shoots the flowers the seeds and within the leaves the the, the the wholeness of the leaf includes the epidermis and the cells with chlorophyll and the conducting tubes of the xylem and the phloem that the pipes that conduct water into the leaf and the, the, the tubes that help move sugars out of it um so, and each of these has its parts. So everywhere we look in nature, we see this wholeness made of parts, and these wholes are parts of larger wholes. So plants and animals are parts of ecosystems, they're parts of Gaia, Gaia's part of the solar system, the solar system's part of the galaxy. So this is the way nature works, and it's also the way our minds work. They're naturally integrative, and they work by synthesizing wholes. Like a sentence makes a wholeness a meaning out of a series of words and each word makes a whole out of the different phonemes that go to make it up and the phonemes are patterns of sound vibrations which can be reduced to smaller patterns etc but everything in nature including the way our minds work works in this way and it seems to me that what you said at the outset of, of the spiritual senses would be as a participation in that process Uh, a sense of linkage to that process through the way our very minds work because in that sense our minds mirror the way that nature works they're not they don't just mirror it they're part of it yeah well maybe uh the spiritual senses is something that not just artists and the spiritually minded might be interested in but perhaps it it will find more of a place um as this take on nature or whatever you know maybe the as the inadequacies of the mechanical model and become more and more evident that there's need to resort to other ways of understanding how systems work. Um, and they're part of the way our minds work and the way our aesthetic sense works anyway. I think it's partly just a matter of recognising it and opening ourselves to it instead of closing ourselves to it. Yeah, well, that seems like a good point at which to end, so thanks very much. Thank you.